0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode.
1: Thank you. So, yeah. so good to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. I was a little late to the show catching your book. I It was on my list and, um, and then it feels like it just came out and everybody started blowing up Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. and everywhere saying, have you read this? And I was like, it's sitting here. I know I need to read this. I could <laughs> do this. Um, yeah. And I mean, needless to say, it was, it was well worth checking out. And I really appreciated both from reading your book. And then um, when we did a panel together for Courage 365, which I'll link to in the show notes for people to mm-hmm. check out. Um, I was taken aback by you as a person and the way that you approach these stories, because there's a lot of exploitative journalists that I've encountered um over the last three years, there's a lot of people who I think write these stories without caring about the women or I mean even male victims that are being covered in these stories so i want to first and foremost say thank you for your approach in in capturing these stories
1: mm-hmm. thank you i I feel we are saying thank you for treating people with humanity
0: mm-hmm.
1: um I will say some of my sources who i've covered for years have had these one off quick and um, rough encounters with journalists and that's not the way it should be.
0: Yeah, yeah, it can almost be re-traumatizing when I have conversations where it's, and it is, it's a very transactional, like I want this information so I can get clicks on this article. And um, I'm curious just before we even dive into Covering these stories, your background's really interesting because you're not coming at this as someone who necessarily experienced the insane branches of Christianity that you cover in your book. Um, you know, you grew up with a little bit of a foot in Presbyterian world in the Methodist world, but you became largely aware of fundamentalist Christianity broadly the same way most of America did through TLC. Through you know certain political candidates over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. um, what was the first thing that really caught your attention? Like, what was the first situation or public you know event or discourse that really made you focus in on this?
1: Mm-hmm. So I uh, <clears throat> I will say uh, I was raised very middle middle America. centrist uh, Protestant, I did have a sideswipe with an evangelical church Mm -hmm. and a mentality that women should not lead. it really upturned my faith along with a super legalistic approach to the Bible, so I did have a crumb of it, but Mm -hmm. otherwise, yes, I was far outside. Um, But I think because my faith took that turn and then fell apart, I have for years had this sense that faith was something so valuable and something so precious. And I grieved for a long time losing my faith, but I also kept a fascination in how other people believe I've had that my entire life. So as a reporter, I mean, I was following and writing about do-gooders in small business sectors, so not in the religion world, though I had two degrees in religion. And one of my crowdfunder companies I had written about told me about a woman who was crowdfunding on their website, and he sent it to me knowing I had some interest in religion. Yeah. And this woman was from a quiverful family. And I was immediately fascinated. I didn't know what right. ruffle meant. I didn't understand her motivations. Right. I asked what she had read. They convinced her now she was leaving. That's why she was crowdfunding. But it was it's kind of just drop into a world that had not been my own. But I understood a little piece of it which was she had been for years motivated by wanting to be good and Mm -hmm. doing things rightly in the way God wanted and that I had understand. And it was fascinating to see how someone with those motives can take on so, so much past the point when their bodies say, I cannot tolerate
0: Mm -hmm.
1: all these pregnancies, my body shutting down
0: and try to keep going and that's from that story it just sort of snowballed yeah yeah certainly did snowball yeah um yeah i re-listened to a, a little bit of your book just last night on the flight home and one of the phrases i wrote down in my notes was you you said the statement like oh how they wanted to be good yeah and it just hit me a lot on the second. I think it was one of those phrases that kind of just I blew past it the first reading and mm-hmm. that time reading it was like, that has been my experience with so many I've interviewed. And I want to say yeah. very clearly, whether someone's whatever someone's motives were, whether it was to be good or whether they bucked against the system doesn't have any bearing on what happened to them being right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is fascinating to me with how vilified these women are And how they're treated as though they Mm -hmm. always had an agenda against the church. Like Mm -hmm. most that I've interviewed have been the most loyal, the most faithful, the most devoted Mm -hmm. members of the church, and the church did not return the favor. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that shows through your book, page after page, and really, I think, is what's going to resonate with people who grew up that way. Mm -hmm. Um, This raises an interesting question. You're covering, you know, you mentioned the Quiverful movement. But in your book, you cover everything from independent fundamental Baptist, which rubs shoulders with that, IBLP, which is very much that uh, Southern Baptist. Which you know, it's so funny when I read about the Southern Baptist now because they were considered liberal to us in the IFB for a long time. Um, you cover Douglas Wilson's kind of cult unto himself that he's developed. Um, all of them could have been their own book. You could have easily done a couple books on Douglas Wilson. I'm, I'm sure. Um, what made you go? I'm not going to niche down to one specific denomination and rather focus on fundamentalism as a whole.
1: I mean, to me, the entry point was not a specific denomination. I didn't come from any of these worlds. The linking points for me were how I encountered the people speaking up
0: Hmm. and
1: out through the internet. And so much of the the way evangelicalism as a whole it's not a a creed it's not a doctrine it's informed in many ways by the ministries people i talk to the books they read it's a marketplace of theological ideas so in some ways it's a choose your own adventurer but in other ways people are easily influenced by friends of a local church or by pastors. And these pastors rely upon the credibility they garner from other high figures, mm-hmm. you know, within their own denomination or others. So you have a web of credibility where people get referrals onto the next onto the next so it isn't it isn't isolated it isn't to my mind a specific denomination dealing with these things it's the way that authority is structured across so many of these institutions that that creates cultures where abuse can flourish hmm. and also it's a, a certain nervousness fear when abuse does surface because I think that sense of authority actually is so tenuous that that leads to cover-up. Mm. Because if this culture that I have bred in my individual ministry has led to abuse, I mean, i would be as credible as your authority figure, as your minister. You can choose to go to anyone else, mm. but keep your, your loyal customers slash mm. congregation you need to have a veneer of godly authority and godly privilege often so yeah. i think that's to me why the book is so amorphous and i know it, it would be simpler if i had just taken one bite here yeah. uh, my first draft of this book was much much longer um but i i, I kind of wanted people to feel overwhelmed because yeah. the people who notice the similarities is the way that abuse happened were likewise overwhelmed to see the scope to see yeah. the scale
0: right yeah that's really interesting and it is it's a daunting thing and i always struggle with this of like how much history lesson do you give versus how much personal experience do you give yeah. and a lot of that i think is wrestling with like who the audience is mm-hmm. and Um, I know for myself, when I release content, I'm not thinking that the leadership within the denomination are going to read it and change because they already are aware of these things in many ways. Um, I'm typically writing for people who or or recording for people who are either about to leave and are secretly listening or Mm -hmm. have left and are trying to figure it out. Um, For you, who was your audience? Were you writing for to inform general public, were you writing with the intent of, I hope people read this and resonate. Was it a little bit of both? Like, mm-hmm. who did you have in mind as you wrote each page?
1: Yeah. So uh, this is something, yeah that I believe is possible given the stories I've written. So mm-hmm. I've covered this topic. Uh, doing both. That's what I've had to um. I write about what to secular folks missing very niche types of experiences in broad secular publications. So I have to help people who are not from these faith communities understand what it would be like and personalize the experience, but then also show why is this relevant to people outside of this church. So I. Often have seen, and it's unusual to see this in social media, but I will have audience responses from um, Christians and atheists, um, feminists, and sort of moderate Christians, sort of okay with the egalitarianism. But they'll find a point of convergence
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the story and find things to discuss and without betrayal, without just the nastiness they can have Um, And my goal for the book was to try to replicate that, to reach folks still very committed to the church, despite all of this, to reach people considerably they have left, and also folks who have like a vague, understanding of christian actualism but they've heard the word christian patriarchy they don't know what it's like but they sure do care how people are treated so i'm I'm hopeful that that's the group i'm getting
0: yeah yeah it's it's really interesting i've seen those conversations too where you have people find those common points and it's one of the things like for me Abuse is one of the areas I think we can be bipartisan about (laughs) in, if anything, you know, like the bar is low, like let's make that the issue that we can link arms on. And I think, you know, your book does a good job of being somewhat agnostic in its overall tone. Like it doesn't feel preachy in terms of leave religion or stay Mm -hmm. spiritual or, you know, all of those things that can become, um, kind of roadblocks for people uh-huh. to actually consume the information. Um, I'm, I'm curious too, you mentioned a little bit earlier about power and mm-hmm. do you think, because when you say it's not a specific denomination, it's not a specific religion, you start going, what is the common denominator between uh-huh. all of these organizations? Um, do you think power is mm. that through line? Do you think it's just individual men who found systems that will serve that desire? or do you think it's a different, like, here's the fault line running through all these denominations?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I I will say that American um, evangelicalism, and certainly there are some progressive evangelicals, but for the most part in my lifetime, it has been very affiliated with conservative politics mm-hmm. in America. So oh, the, the thirst for power, that you may see from people who want be expansive uh, maybe church networks or who want to have a runaway bestseller film conference halls, It's still it also to political influence. So this, the Southern Baptist Convention, which was, is the largest evangelical denomination that they would like at work. Um, it's so deeply married to conservative politics in our country. The ERLC is a lobbying body. Their yeah. dollars go to political change. Yeah. So I, I don't think you can extract that And yeah. the same way credibility between different pastors as they build up their platforms mm-hmm. that relevance. You also get the credibility if you're able to rub shoulders with an up-and-coming Republican Mm -hmm. governor or Republican senator. And if you are those people running for office, you garner Mm -hmm. votes through your attachment to homeschooling families, to these networks of people who want the world to be godly in their image
0: of what that means so it's uh, very symbiotic yeah yeah that is huge and I, I noticed this during COVID quite a bit and for those listening don't worry i'm not going to go deep into COVID here but for um uh, because that's a polarizing topic now mm-hmm. um but when COVID happened i saw a prominent independent fundamental baptist pastor named paul chapel in lancaster and i know for a fact firsthand from people who've attended the college that many of them were given demerits, some I believe expelled for reading John MacArthur's books, because he's not, he doesn't toe the line with independent fundamental Baptist theology because he's Calvinistic and all these all these sorts of things. During COVID, when California was one of the toughest places for churches to stay open, one day Paul Chapel posts a picture without ever having recanted any of his positions on on John MacArthur. He posts a picture with John MacArthur at lunch saying so thankful for his faithfulness and and appreciate him fighting the good Mm-mm. fight, essentially. I forget all his exact wording. Mm-hmm. But I stared at that picture and I thought, this is not a, for a group that says, oh, it's about the fundamentals and we don't stray from those. It seems like the fundamentals are flexible when it serves a purpose that will keep the doors open. Mm-mm. And that was like, to me, that's such a crystal clear is like, you can't read John MacArthur's book in your college, but when it comes to fighting the good fight in their, in mm-hmm. their mind, um, all of a sudden we can be buddy, buddy. And you see that with politics as well. Obviously Donald Trump, you know, did not stand mm-hmm. for, uh, evangelical values in any facet whatsoever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he represented, he spoke to that demographic. It, there was yes. a clear, direct line to them and that was intentional. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I was curious about that, like the the through line through all those denominations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one one of the things that I wanted to uh, to ask about as well. Um, obviously, there are good people in these churches. Um, yeah. There's, I said it, so people listening can go. He he said it. There's good people. There's good pastors. I think there's true mm-hmm. believers who are misguided in some areas, um, but there are people with proper right motives. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: And I think a common critique of anyone who covers the bad is why focus on the bad and not focus on those good people. Um, You mentioned in your book, you you said I wanted a faith that uh, would bring me closer to heaven and all the talk in the church seemed to be about hell, and it kind of made me internally question, you know, we cover these stories and critics seem to say the same thing about that. It's like you focus on the bad, We want to talk about the good things, like the good pastor here, the good, you know, the medical centers opened here, all the all the critiques and all the -hmm. the things that Christians have done. Um, Why do you think it is so important to focus on this problem? Uh, And I'm asking this with an answer of my own in mind. Why do you think it's so important to, to address this problem rather than focus on highlighting examples of doing it right?
1: Mm-hmm. But I would say, for one, I feel like I just read a whole book about the good people. Mm-hmm. You know, for truly, for some of these folks, speaking up was their way of trying to save the church. They're not trying to sacrifice the church and their quest for speaking of abuse. They're trying to save it. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly some people lost their faith along the way, but many still have. A desire, or they would have quit long ago because this is difficult and can be horrible. They want to protect other people within those churches. Um, I think ignoring ugliness does not make it go away, mm-hmm. ignoring pain does not heal it. Now, that said, um, I had an experience a couple of weeks ago. Krista Brown, who has led the charge for reform in SBC for years, was actually invited to my hometown by an American Baptist pastor here. And he hosted a three-day series of events. And the first one was an an ecumenical event of all sorts of clergy. And we talked about abuse. Mm -hmm. And we did a community event, and she spoke at his church. And I think there are two things that are important there. One, it was open, it was honest, it was within a church. And afterward, people came up to Christa and I and confided things I don't know they'd ever felt comfortable saying at all. They said it in a church. And the other piece is that um, Pastor Jason Henschel, re- reading the book, Immediately said, What can I do? Mm. I don't want my church to feel like that. I want my church to be somewhere where we talk about these things and try to prevent them. So it's not that that's negative. The response was so affirming and so positive because because people could see it maybe felt a little risky. This isn't something pastors talk about every week. But he did it out of care for his congregation. And frankly, I think out of awe for someone like Krista.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. I want to clap when you say you covered the good people. That's such a good way to talk about it is, in, in uh, I mentioned this before we record, this is one of the things that's um, one of the critiques of um, the series that I was just involved in, Let Us Pray. Um, One of the critiques from a couple pastors has been, you broad brush the entire denomination and you broad brush all of the independent Baptists. And I just sitting there watching the documentary and seeing my friends on the screen sharing these stories and going, they were independent fundamental Baptists. Like these are people who aligned with your beliefs. The only reason that any of that relationship to the church changed was how it responded to their abuse. And so it was an interesting thing to me. Not only are victims not included as part of the church in many of these cases, like immediately they're kind of exercised from the church, yeah. but also like their very like identity and humanity is stripped away to say like mm-hmm. the, they're, you know, you're broad brushing all of the IFB is bad. It's like, well, no, I'm calling out, there's an innocent person here that's been hurt. And the church has an opportunity in that split second to go, what kind of church are we going to be? And mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's encouraging, like the churches you mentioned, like, and you, you met, um, I was so jealous when I saw the picture, you, you know, meeting Jimmy Hinton in person. And, you know, yeah. I think of people like that who I've encountered who, like, defy the mold in a lot of ways and are doing that good work. And the attitude of theirs is not, it's never let's silence victims because they make us look bad. It's like, let's listen and see what we can do mm-hmm. better. And I think that's a really powerful thing to see.
1: Yeah. And for those naysayers, just you know, be the good example. If you want more examples out in the world and for people to report on them, be that a good example. Show people that how you can be done well.
0: Yeah. I told someone that the other day, they said, "This my church isn't like that, which I get all the time. And I literally said, "Then this is not about you." <laughs> and, yeah. it can, um, and then a friend of mine, who's an advocate, she said, uh, "It can be about you if you don't listen." But right now, this isn't about you. Like we're talking about the specific issue, and you can, again, choose which side you wanna you wanna stand on. Um, yeah. I, I wanna dive into the the book and the approach, and you specifically interviewed female victims um, for for the book. Um, and it's, it is, you mentioned this at the beginning of your introduction, I believe it is, um, and it's something that was in my mind reading it is that women, and I think this is a bit of a cliche, but there's always been that thought of like the mom dragging the kids and the dad to church, the mm-hmm. uh, grandmother making sure her family gets that next generation of faith. Women have been. The biggest supporters of the church mm-hmm. throughout last several generations. That's been mm-hmm. the, you know, they're dragging the husband to church who doesn't want to hear it. And all those stories have become commonplace and heralded as these incredible stories.
1: And back now, up statistically, women have not yeah. until now been more religious than men.
0: Right. And the stats in Barna studies forever have been, yeah, mm-hmm. 60, 70% women, smaller portions men. For... You know, you say in your book they're kind of the canaries in the coal mine. Like they started leaving quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pivoted drastically over the last couple of years. Um, why do you think women have always bared the responsibility of of what people do with the church? So women have been responsible to drag people into the church and to drag the the people and, and with good intentions, I think, to but raise I mean, better yeah. families, to you know. To have their husband, you know, experience change within the church—all those stories. So now women are faced with the responsibility of dragging all those same people back out of some of these churches, mm-hmm. and are being listened to about as much. So, why do you think that responsibility has always been on the shoulders of women specifically?
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting question. I cannot help the answer for all of church history. <laughs> I suspect part of it is that um just a a maternal sort of responsibility Mm. i mean i even went through this a bit as an agnostic and then an atheist with my own children um when they were little we realized they won't understand cultural references they had no idea who noah was Mm. and um I didn't want to opt them out of faith. That was wrong in my mind, too. But I was also as an, apple, an uncomfortable being in a church. So it was really a pickle, um, but it weighed on me. I In grad school, we read um, these devastating colonial journals from women who lost their children um, before they had been baptized and just that sheer devastation of feelings of not only had they failed in in their minds, a failure of being able to keep their child alive, but because they had not gotten them baptized, Mm. they would be suffering eternal torment, and so the women tormented themselves for years and years and years. I don't know why that would weigh on mothers more than fathers, but I have seen anecdotal evidence over and over that sometimes it does. I also think in many churches, the communal experiences often revolve around food. And Mm -hmm. so by default, women are the ones in the kitchen. So I think that gives uh, Mm -hmm. like a social piece of it. Um, I I cannot explain why. generation after generation of women in churches where um, men hold leadership positions would feel so desperately committed to those structures mm-hmm. other than perhaps dedication to being in the pew was the most they could show and so they chose to do that. Um, however I think your point that for so long, it was women dragging folks into the church, and now they're part of the group dragging them out. That's interesting. Um, I think of it more as a wave of abandonment. So now we're seeing with survey data from Gen Z women. Um, typically, if people do leave the church up until now, and generationally, it has been men leaving more than women men forever have been more likely to be atheist than women. Gen Z, we're seeing more women leaving, so the threshold is flipping. So yes. this is a very recent historic moment in America. Um, and I think just in my own reporting, I believe a big chunk of that has been the church response post Me Too and then the, rabid support of Donald Trump by leaders who maybe even acknowledge his accusations against him, the same ones who put so much pressure on women to remain pure, to protect men, making abuse the woman's fault, and to see those same people specifically support a man who in their eyes is as an abuser. That just broke. A yeah. lot of believers, just the, the sheer hypocrisy of it, really it hardened a lot of people's faith.
0: Wow, um, yeah, there's there's a lot that I started thinking about as you were as you were sharing all that. Yeah, and it, I was Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment, but first I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible, and that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad. And it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious Options and these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to FactorMeals.com/preacherboys50 and use code Preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code Preacherboys50 at FactorMeals.com/preacherboys. 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. No, I mean, there's, that's really, it's funny because, you know, when you start doing something like this, you know, for you, you've been covering this, these things for a long time, you know, and through articles, not through the book for myself, like, really, I've been looking into this for a long time, but I've been publicly talking about it and interviewing experts for like three years. Mm-hmm. And you always feel like this frustration of, you can understand so much and still feel like you understand so little about what makes these things tick. And like you Mm -hmm. said, it's hard for me as a, you know, I I look at it. I I told my wife this like probably two years ago, like early on in the show. And they said, I understand why so many men have been comfortable in this system for so long, Mm -hmm. because there's not really any drawback (laughs) to being a man. And, there are, but I would say, observationally speaking, growing up in it, there's not a mm-hmm. lot of drawbacks. If you're a woman, you get a lot of drawbacks, almost exclusively drawbacks. And so mm-hmm. I I was telling her, I was like, I don't understand how women stay in these environments. Like, But I think the real answer is they believe it. They believe mm-hmm. that this is God's word. What, what's being taught yes. is God's word. But it's on the flip side now, I find myself in a position where... You know, I've said it a billion times, the minute my bubble burst was when I found out there was a story of abuse within our denomination because it went from going, nothing bad can happen here, we're perfect, to, oh, we're not. Um, but now I find myself in conversations with men, even men who are loosely allying with survivors. Okay. And I feel like I'm missing something in translation when we have conversations where, I'll address an issue and I'll say, hey, um, you know, for example, I was told as a teenage boy, you know, if you struggle with pornography, get married because then you can use your wife. Mm -hmm. That's the exact verbiage Mm -hmm. I was told. Yes. I told that to somebody recently who is still a Christian, Mm -hmm. and they said, well, I understand what they're saying. And, and they started going and I, and I sat there and I said, I don't think you do. (laughs) Let Mm -hmm. me say it again, because to me, people identify, like they're starting to see some of these obvious things, but it's like, once you start getting into the system that creates it, Mm -hmm. people get very panicky about that system being disrupted. It's like, well, I get it. It's not bad for me. I understand this part and I don't understand and I'm sorry, this isn't really a question. I just wanted to share Uh -uh. this is for me, I don't understand why so many men struggle with empathizing with women who are sharing these stories. Uh -uh. Because again, I can't resonate with some of the rules and the horrific things that I know friends of mine who grew up in this, in these denominations experience. But for me, it's like hearing the stories enough to change that perspective. And I feel like for a lot of, Men, they refuse to read the Bible through women's eyes. They refuse to Maybe. hear stories through women's eyes. Why do you think there is that resistance to hearing that stuff and to really putting yourself in the shoes of women within the church?
1: Yeah, well, I think the theological education is very gendered, it's very bifurcated yeah. within evangelical churches. So although you share the same, even, even physical church, what you're taught is different like you may be taught that your wife can be a sexual method of mm-hmm. and meanwhile the girls are giving lessons about like this ball of paper or this ripped up rose or this chewed off cookie that's you if you let a man touch you it would ruin for your future husband oh yes but once you're married you're not really able to say no because now it's your responsibility to keep him from having an affair to keep him from looking at pornography the responsibility those those, uh, factors of responsibility are different the other piece that i think um creates that compassion gap is within the protestant denominations of abuse has come out it's far more likely that it's women speaking up. And I think part of that is simply the timing of Me Too and Church Too. Part of that is a very gendered view on men, on homosexuality, men who have been abused by other men. Mm -hmm. If they come out as having been abused, they're going to be called queer, they're going to be seen as a sinner. Now, women, may be seen as having images of the unsimple too, but it's it's a different set of pressures. Um, I do not believe that we have an accurate scaling for the amount of abuse by men in these churches. Just looking at actual statistics, mm. with the Catholic church, though there were female victims, frequently there were men whose mm. cases. Um, came to public attention and for a long time Protestants generally said, oh, that's the Catholics, that's not us. So I think there's still that piece too where it's it's more difficult for men from Protestant churches to speak up and I really struggle with that because as a reporter, I need to tell stories that one, I, I don't want to make people public. I, I'm very leery of being the first place someone comes forth with an abuse claim. Um, and I have witnessed, this is why I wrote the book, that this, this uh, wave of advocates has predominantly been women, but only women. Um, and over time now we're seeing more like gendered on binary folks who are maybe racist girls who are part of this too. So it's it's more complicated. Um, but also I was trying to play off of this binary that exists. Yeah. And oh like this is a piece of why it's been such a problem. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It is um, I think even culturally, you know. stigma I'm glad you mentioned the stigma around men coming forward as victims Mm -hmm. is huge I would say a hundred times so in the churches like the ones I grew up in where like you said and I've I've mentioned before I think homophobia plays a massive role in why you see so few male victims come forward Mm -hmm. and I think that's a I think that's just an obvious thing and I, I always read that one in six Statistic for men, one in four for women, and I have to go. Like those numbers have to be off, and there has to be a lot more women, and it has to be a lot more men Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: would fall into that. Um, You you mentioned something, and it's it's a perfect transition to something that's important to me as someone who's trying to cover these stories. And um, so this is free coaching for me right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now you mentioned for for people who are um coming to you to share their story mm-hmm. and that is a huge responsibility and one of the things that i like about you is you view it as such and i think again i've encountered a lot of reporters journalists podcasters the last couple years that i don't think bear any weight of that they just kind mm-hmm. of tell the story um talk to me about choosing whose stories to share because i'm sure your inbox is flooded constantly with people who have their yeah. own stories and you mentioned in your book, there's people who may not be in the right place you know, mentally yet to share the story. And you can tell just by knowing how this is going to affect that it may be too much mm-hmm. for them at the time. Mm-hmm. They may need to pursue legal options first, which I've sent probably literally hundreds of people to lawyers or police, depending on where their case sits right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to factor in like just the general, are they ready for the amount of exposure this story is going to get? Yeah. for you when someone reaches out how do you kind of filter through those requests while also not being the arbiter of are you allowed to tell your story you know like because yeah. that can feel that way that hey my platform's not the place yet you know you don't want to be another person giving a cold shoulder to them
1: mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> funny you mentioned I inbox this <laughs> weekend i don't know what's I mean, it's, I get emails from folks and DMs, but I just right now have a number of just big institutional stories that people have come to me with, each of which would require a investigation. And I'm kind of, like, I'm one person, I'm a freelancer. So I think with anyone who reaches out, um and sometimes they just want to talk
0: yeah.
1: which i mean i'm not a therapist but i can listen and i can say like here's what other people have gone through when they didn't come forward nothing may happen this is gonna be on the internet forever your kid when they to your name in third grade this may be the first thing that comes up we'll have no control um have you, or talk to the police I mean, one thing I will need is a paper trail, um, both for yours for the credibility of the story and my own credibility. Um, and I have to explain I ask these questions of everyone. This is an extensive process that you're committing to quite a bit of scrutiny from me because I need to make sure the story is airtight mm-hmm. for you later. Um, and in that way, just check their memory too. I mean, people have been through pl- um, uh, the interviewing process can be long um, and then we'll have to circle back and reconstruct timelines. It's, it's, a big, it's a big thing to go through. Now that said, if someone hears all of that, hears I may pitch the story and no one may take it and then we'll have done a lot of pre-reporting for nothing and are still game. Um, I'm still cautious and say, would you like to use a pseudonym? Or I might encourage them to use a pseudonym um, just for all the reasons I've already mentioned. And then I may have to play with an editor who would prefer an AM and explain heres that here's the impact usually at this point editors know and there are policies of publications um, yeah. about outing sex abuse survivors right. but it's it's a major it's a huge decision trick.
0: Yeah. do you, um, you work with major publications like you've worked with like vice and you know like legitimate, publications beyond you just putting the story out, you know, like, and so how much of a fight do you find yourselves in with how different publications choose to approach these stories? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, even down to the titles of articles, because you can read, I've said this before on my life, I try to be careful with the titles of my episodes because I don't Mm want to focus on the most grisly. thinking about if somebody Googles their mom in third or fourth grade, is the title going to be their name? Rate, you know, mm-hmm. like all of these kind of incendiary kind of titles that may be necessary in some circumstances, may not in others. But like, do you find yourself fighting with insensitive publications often about how they package a story you spent so much time preparing?
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's there's the answer for that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, the the title. Why? I mean, uh, just in general, in this industry, the writer often has no control over your headline or the deck. Um, I can put in what I think it should be. Usually, a good editor will let me see what they're planning on. Um, And if it's online, like keywords they're planning on using. And at that point, if I have to give an impassioned rationale for why they need to change it, I happily do so. Um. But it's a, a, like, there's often a battle on some front, but usually it's more of a, an education. People just mm-hmm. don't know because they haven't dealt with this or of exactly this type of story before. Um, but yeah, the, the pieces that I'm not able to control again, the they, they made me nervous, the art that goes with yeah. the story is a mystery to me until it's published almost always so that's what drives people in and i get like no control over that at all so um yeah that's also something i have to tell the sources like it's mm-hmm. they're, they're arrests. um and a piece that just if someone's thinking about calling me or emailing me so you know even once the story is written and um maybe through the first round of edits I do an initial fact check with the source And every um, I might say it either happened to them or is you said this you said that um, I do I give them the draft of the story that's against state ethics but I believe that he was the survived but they deserve to you know exactly what I'm saying this I' didn't make sure I understood it correctly and then depending upon the publication they, they also hear from an additional fact that we have to do a legal review where i've annotated the entire story to link out to whatever documents i have so it's it's a it's a process it really is
0: yeah well i have two more questions one okay. you mentioned the um education piece which I, mm-hmm. I love that approach like educating people on what to say because a lot of times unintentional harm happens through these processes. Mm -hmm. Um, With that in mind, for anyone who is covering these stories, whether it is a larger publication or whether it's someone who is watching TLC and doing recap videos on YouTube, like that whole spectrum of people that are covering these, if you could encourage people to consider or take into mind one thing when approaching how they cover these stories, um, what would you say?
1: Oh. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess like you're you're dealing with someone's most vulnerable moment. Mm. Maybe the worst thing that ever happened to them. And I guess treat them the way you would hope to be treated, in opening yourself up to the world. Um, about something so personal.
0: Yeah. I love that. It's in, I think even just the word someone like that, it's a person and especially this is what gets muddy in the reality TV world, which happens to cover a lot of these things is that Mm -hmm. we look at people as a cast of (laughs) characters, you know? And I thought that again, watching the docu-series just this last weekend, like I'm seeing people I know and seeing them on tv and i've seen this in podcasts and even in your book i know many people that you interviewed in your book Mm -hmm. personally and you see like how their story is structured in a series or in a book but then it's also you have all of this these layers of oh i know what their favorite drink is at starbucks or i Mm -hmm. know this about them or i know that i know their husband i know this person i know that how their parents probably feel about this piece of information and it it is important, I think, to remember like treating everyone as if they have, because they do, they have that humanity behind them and all these layers that you don't see. And um, I think that's, I think that's huge. Um, the last question I got to ask you, um, we've exposed a lot through this book and the stories, like you said, your inbox is, is overflowing and abundant with many more to cover. Um what do you see your focus being next is there a disobedient (laughs) is there a disobedient women too is there a um is there more of a here's how we start fixing this approach like where Mm -hmm. do you see the focus and direction being moving forward
1: so that's a question a few people have been asking me i sort of gave myself a break over the last couple of months and all the book stuff um i feel obligated if i can to research and cover a couple of these larger stories that have landed with me if i'm able to but um actually the the question you're asking about women and why they stayed for so long and why they're leaving now. That's something that I've wanted to write about for almost a decade. It's like this major lingering question and now I feel like what I predicted is happening so I should get to write about it. (laughs) So that's something I'm likely to try to cover into the future. But um, sadly, there's no shortage of abuse stories yeah. and at this point that's kind of what I know how to do
0: well I I had to ask because I want to be and that's why everyone asked. I'm sure we've got to get the scoop on what book two is but um uh, but truly I don't want to at all invalidate the amount of work that you've done so far and this book is going to make ripples I think for a uh very long time and it's i see new people reading it every single week people are tagging me in it you know and saying hey have you read this or have you checked this out and it's it's really incredible and and i am a huge fan of you and of your work and um i think taking a break is appropriate um and i know also um because i think you're similar in a lot of ways to me you're not gonna be able to take a break for long there's lots to (laughs) dive into lots of stories to cover um, but thank you so much for, for doing this, taking time out of your schedule. And uh, for anybody who wants to connect with you, obviously, they need to buy a copy of Disobedient Woman mm-hmm. immediately. Um, mm-hmm. What's the best place to keep up with you and what you're working on?
1: Oh, boy. So I feel so <laughs> fragmented. I'm still on Twitter, which I still call Twitter. Um, I've kind of moved over to I've been doing Instagram more, I have mm-hmm. Substack. So I'm all
0: over the internet. Perfect. Awesome. Well, wherever people connect with you, um, I hope that they do. And thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to chatting again really soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys
1: podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle
0: at Preacher Boys Doc.